I'm Mark Ficciani. Welcome to Forge Your Path. To see the type of impact he's been able to have on the lives of his athletes. Hey everybody, welcome back. Another episode of the Forger Path podcast here. And I'm really excited to share this one with you because I think there's just so much to it. I discovered this story the other day. Um, great time of the year, loving watching baseball. And it's one of my favorite sports. And as a Yankee fan, uh, just what a rich history and so many different players that have had an impact over time. And this one hit me particularly because I've been talking a lot recently, as you know, about habits and routines and, uh, and flexibility. And so right now I'm reinventing my morning routines. I'm reinventing different habits because life's been a little bit up in the air. And so while I'm trying to model flexibility, I'm also trying to build in new routines that I'm going to do every day. So in the last couple of weeks, I've started to build some new ones and I was getting pretty excited. I hit a five-day streak of some new habits I have around visualization and my goals. Then I hit 10 days. I hit 15 days. I'm up to 20 days. So really exciting progress. And uh, while I know it's only 20 days, it's a start. And you have to start somewhere when you're trying to build that streak. And so I was feeling pretty good about my foundation. And I ran across a story about... Uh, about the passing and the anniversary of the passing of a great. And I thought, yeah, this really puts it in perspective. So 20 days, that's a nice foundation. That's a nice start. And when I hit the one month mark, I'm going to feel really good about that. I think anything you do for 30 days consistently, now you've got the seeds of something special. And so it's a start. You get to 60 days. Now you're you're entrenching some pieces because now you're going from that place where it is conscious, thoughtful, there's the friction of I have to do it. And you get to 60 days and even 90 days. And look, people, different, different uh, perspectives around habit science. How many days does it take to form a habit? Some people say 21 days, others say 66 days. I don't know the right answer. I'm not a scientist, but I do know that the longer you do something, you kind of move into that place of, um, what I would call unconscious competence, where you just do it every day. You don't even think about it. It just becomes who you are. You show up and you just do. And man, when you get the right habit like that, that's, that's gold. Uh, we all know when you do the opposite, when you're unconsciously executing the wrong habits, that's poison, absolute death. So um, while, again, excited about this momentum I'm getting, 60 days, 90 days. I'm getting excited thinking about what would it be like? What's my mindset going to be like when I do this for six months? How about even a year? And when you take action every day for a year, some special things happen. Put this in perspective. Any, any level of consistency that you want to envision, maybe it's a year, maybe it's two years, maybe it's five years. The compounding of that is extraordinary, right? Well, I can't think of a better example of somebody who showed up every day and did their job, not just for one year, not just the consistency of two years or even five, but how about a guy that did it for 14 years, 14 years in a row. So I'm talking about the one and only iron horse, Lou Gehrig. So 
if you don't know his story, I think it's pretty, pretty exceptional. And I love this one, not just because I'm a Yankee fan. I've also got some ties to the Pachani family here in that he grew up in New York City. And my brother was born in New York City. My, on my mother's side, uh, my mom grew up in New York City in a neighborhood called Washington Heights, which is not the most, uh, it's not exactly growing up on Park Avenue. And my gramps and my nana, God bless and rest in peace. Uh, they lived there for a long time, for 40 plus years. And, but before that, my gramps, because he grew up in Hell's Kitchen, which was aptly named at one time Hell's Kitchen because it was the worst neighborhood in the city. Um, same places that Lou Gehrig was brought up. He lived in Washington Heights. He lived in Hell's Kitchen. And, uh, and kind of a neat family tie is that my grandfather had Lou Gehrig's math book at one time. And uh, that was the old days when someone would put their name in a book and then they would give it back because if you went to PS 167 or 182 or whatever your local public school was, you'd give back your book every year. So uh, my Gramps being the upstanding citizen he was, he probably could have sold the book for a fortune at that time, which would have been, I don't know, $20, which would have been worth a couple hundred bucks in today's society. But my Gramps was always an honest guy, uh, but it was pretty neat that he did have his textbook. So enough about the Fajani history. Lou Gehrig grows up in the city and he actually gets recruited to play football at Columbia University. So what better thing than a city kid than to go to the preeminent college in New York? But he doesn't really get recruited as a baseball player. He's a really good baseball player, but football is the path. So he gets to college and he's playing football and baseball and he starts to get noticed. And in a particular game, which I love this connection as well, he, on a particular Saturday, the Saturday that the new Yankee Stadium opens where Babe Ruth homers and ushers in a new era, what does Lou Gehrig do? He's playing the Williams Eats, my alma mater, and he strikes out 17 batters, but they still manage to lose. Uh, he also homers in the game. And there's a scout who was kind of on the watch for him and had noticed his incredible power. So during this time, he gets offered a contract and he goes to play for the New York Yankees. So what happens pretty quickly after that is exciting. He makes it through, he ends up coming up and he gets to the team and joins them in the 1923 season. And he's got great success. He bats 423 in 1923 and he bats 500 in 1924. But here's the thing. It's pinch hitting duty. And he's stuck behind a guy named Wally Pip. And Wally Pip is an all-star. He's one of the premier power hitters in the game. And so for two years, Gary gets this great pinch hitting duty and they see the talent, but he's behind an all-star. So think about that. I know for me, when I have to wait for something, whether it's an hour, a day, a week, or for an opportunity to wait years is really difficult. I know a couple of times in my life, I was waiting for opportunities and, uh, and it seemed like forever when I had to wait. So two years, he's on the bench waiting for his opportunity. And then here's what happens when opportunity knocks. Wally Pitt started the 25 season. He's in a bit of a slump. And on a particular day, on a fateful day, I guess you could say, June 1st, 1925, he's in a slump. 
And he also has a really bad headache that day. So he complains of the headache and he pulls himself out of the lineup. Enter Lou Gehrig. So Lou Gehrig steps in and not only does he play that day, he plays every single game the remainder of the 1925 season. And uh, look, I'm a baseball guy. I love the numbers and geek out on it a little bit. He bats 295, 20 home runs, 68 RBIs over the remaining 126 games. So that's a really respectable effort. So he's in the lineup to stay while Pip doesn't come back. 1926, he's given the start again. And this is his breakout year. So in a full season, he bats 313. He knocks in 112 runs, and he leads the league with 20 triples. So he's clearly on the path to stardom. Now, what's the next year? If you're a baseball fanatic or you know anything about baseball history, what's perhaps the greatest team of all time? It's the 27 Yankees. So no one could have expected what Lou Gehrig did this year. Batting average, 373. 47 home runs. And he breaks Babe Ruth's record by knocking in 175 runs that year. Crushes it in the postseason. Yankees win the World Series. So I could probably go on and on about Lou Gehrig's numbers alone and just talk about his impact on baseball history and his bat. But that's not even the core of the story. What really is impressive is what he did. So he comes in, like I said, he plays the rest of 25. He plays in 26. He plays in 27. And so by 28, he's a, he's a formidable part of the lineup. And look, if you don't really know baseball that well, or you're not really a sports aficionado, you might say baseball is not a contact sport. So how hard is it to go up and play every single day without a day off? You know, it's not like football where uh, you're getting hit and, it, and it's a violent collision every single play. It's baseball. But let me tell you something. There's a lot of things that can happen in baseball, uh, not to mention uh, the occasional cold or flu or getting sick, which all of us have. You can get spiked if you're playing the field by, by an opposing player. Uh, you get all kinds of soft tissue injuries, sprinting uh, around the bases, uh, any different piece in the field, uh, sprained ankles. All these are, are complete complete hazards for a baseball player that are consistent. So here are a couple of things that Lou Gehrig had to overcome on the path of the street. So 1934 seemed to be a particularly tough year. In June, 1934, he's hit by a pitch under the eye. He's knocked unconscious and he's actually unconscious for minutes at a time. And what happens is he gets knocked out and he comes back and he plays the rest of the game. With today's concussion protocols, that never would happen. And I'm not advocating for the fact that he stayed in the game. I just think it's extraordinary. A month later, he suffers what's known as a lumbago attack, which is acute lower back pain. But somehow he manages to show up, make his first plate appearance and gets on base before he comes out for a pinch runner. Uh, after his career was over, he gets x-rays taken and it was revealed that he suffered through several fractures he didn't even know about. He probably just thought he was nicked up, but he actually had several fractures, which is crazy. And then he also played through several bouts of what was thought to be the flu. In hindsight, sadly, it probably was the first symptoms of the dis impending disease that would ultimately bear his name.
uh, because as you know, or maybe as you don't know, um, in the second half of 1938, he started to suffer a decline. He suddenly was not the same player. He was getting on base and he was still making contact, uh, which is amazing to think about in 1939. He had the same eye. He only struck out once in his first 28 at-bats, but he couldn't get any power. He struggled to hit the ball out of the infield. So after going hitless on April 30th, Lou Gehrig had decided he played his last game. 2,130 consecutive games in uniform. Let me say that again. 2,130 consecutive games in uniform. Surpassing the prior record by over 800 games and essentially five-plus seasons. So he gets some medical treatment, tries to get assessed to see what's happening, and he's diagnosed with ALS. And if you don't know much about ALS, it is just a crippling disease that completely debilitates the body and, and makes, makes a person a shell of himself. So a few months later, his diagnosis becomes public and the Yankees quickly decide that they're going to have a Lou Gehrig appreciation day on July 4th because they didn't really know how much longer he'd be able to make public appearances. So as great as this streak was and, and as, as awesome as the consistency was, and who the man was on the field, when you understand what this man was like off the field, I'm just so humbled by it. Because for a guy that had every opportunity in the world and then the rug was pulled out from under him, which is cruel as can be, he goes from a larger than life figure to a battling patient in an incredibly short period of time. So he makes this speech on Lou Gehrig Day. And, and here's what's awesome that just expresses his gratitude. And to me, it's one of the best speeches that I've ever heard, and I just thought it would be great to share the speech itself. So here it is. I'm not going to try to recreate Lou Gehrig, but I do think it's so important to hear it. Fans, for the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. I've been in ballparks for 17 years, and I've never received anything but kindness and encouragement from you fans. When you look around, wouldn't you consider it a privilege to associate yourself with such fine-looking men as are standing in uniform in this ballpark today? Sure, I'm lucky. Who wouldn't consider it an honor to have known Jacob Rupper? Also, the builder of baseball's greatest empire, Ed Barrow. To have spent six years with that wonderful little fellow, Miller Huggins. Then to have spent the next nine years with that outstanding leader, that smart student of psychology, the best manager in baseball today, Joe McCarthy. Sure, I'm lucky. When the New York Giants, a team you would give your right arm to beat and vice versa send to you a gift, that's something. When everybody down to the groundskeepers and those boys in white coats remember you with trophies, that's something. When you have a father and a mother who work all their lives so you have an education and build your body, it's a blessing. When you have a wife who's been a tower of strength and shown more courage than you ever dreamed existed, that's the finest I know. So I close in saying that I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. I mean, what can you say about that speech? That is truly a class act. And I'm just humbled by that incredible grace that which he dealt with his disease. So what's next is, is truly just as impressive 
he had a lot of opportunities and he had the chance to cash in on a lot of lucrative offers, including a public speaking tour. But instead, what did Lou Gehrig do? He chose public service and he felt there was some value in taking a role as New York City Parole Commissioner because he felt there was value in the parole system and the ability for people to recuperate and rebuild their lives. So he held this role, significantly lower paying role than he could have made elsewhere until a month before his death. So even in illness, even when he was physically not remotely the man that he was, he served until he was physically unable to do so a month before his death. So a little more than 82 years ago, Lou Gehrig succumbed to ALS and he left this earth. So as I think about these fledgling streaks of my own, uh, these 20-day streaks, these 30-day streaks, and, and as I move on, it just reminds me that it's not just the consistency of who you are and how you produce in whatever your arena is, whether that's, that's business, whether you're thinking about um, your consistency as a parent, as a spouse, really any area of life. It's not just about showing up. It's about being the kind of person and having that humility and grace to live with character and truly, truly feel as though this man's life was cut too short. So Mr. Gehrig, thank you for your role model that you provided for all of us. Thank you for showing people what consistency looked like on the field and more importantly, what character and grace looked like off it. The world needs more men and leaders like you. So thank you for listening, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it out. Please keep spreading the word about Forge Your Path, and we'll see you next time.